0: Father, thank you for the many expressions of grace that we've already been made aware of this morning. And thank you, Lord, for your provision for our needs and for the most important need we have, the need of Jesus as our Saviour. And so, Father, as we turn to your word now, Lord, would you would you address our hearts and our minds? And Lord, would you not only inform us but transform us and affect us? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to speak about the blessings of harvest. Now, when I started looking at this, it was, it was difficult to feed everything into one text. So I'm going to use three different texts this morning. As I want to look briefly at the blessings of harvest. You know, harvest festivals have been a tradition that has been held and celebrated in many countries over many years, in many different ways. In the UK, it will be typically held around the end of September. Uh, so we're a little late. Um, but as I discovered, and some of you don't believe me, there is such a thing called Bristol Time, okay, which actually runs 10 minutes late. If you don't believe me, look it up on the internet. I don't think we can ex- explain two months, but, you know, but at least we, we're doing it this morning. And although the food here that we've we brought along is, is not fresh from the ground, typically, in years gone by, it will be people will be bringing the fruits to the ground and the trees, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, these, these are not because, because they've got to go to the food bank. So, uh, as Pete's already said, if they're out of date, they're no good. But although this is processed food, this food originated from the ground. And the central thought and objective about, around harvest festivals is Thanksgiving. And this is the case throughout the world in different religions and in different countries and different times. In fact, in the UK, harvest festivals started out as a pagan service. And then in 1843, the celebration was first started in ch- churches, in a church in Cornwall. That was the first time it turned into a, a Christian service. And the first mention of the, in the Bible of harvest is in Genesis 8. And we're going to look at verses 20 to 22. So if you turn to Genesis 8. It's easy because it's the first book. I haven't got to remember any rhymes. And we're just going to look at two verses here. Verses, well, three verses, sorry. 20 to 22. Then, God, then Noah built an ark altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal, and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Prior to this promise of God in verse 22, while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not sleep. Prior to this promise, the Bible tells us that mankind had multiplied on the earth since Adam, but along with the multiplication of mankind was a growth in wickedness, was a growth in sin. And in Genesis, we haven't got time to go into all the details this morning, but in Genesis 6, verse 5, we read that God decided to blot out and destroy his creation, destroy mankind because of their evil and wipe them off the face of the earth. But in Genesis 6, verse 8, it says, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah is then instructed to build an ark and to take his family and every kind of animal, male and female, so as to preserve mankind and the animal kingdom. As probably most of you know the story, but it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and it wiped out every living thing that lived upon the land. After the flood subsided and Noah and the animals were released from the ark, Noah, as we've just read here, built... an altar altar to the Lord and sacrificed animals on it. In chapter 8, verse 21, we read that when God smelled the aroma, he said in his heart, I will never curse the ground because of man. Now, making this promise that he makes in verse 22, he's not saying that because, he's not saying I'll never curse the ground again because as a result of the flood, the issue of sin is dealt with. Wasn't (laughs) it? It wasn't dealt with. He said, because from the earliest of age, the intention of evil, it says here, from, ev- from the earliest of age, man's heart is evil from his youth. You know, if you don't believe that mankind is, is sinful, let's because it perhaps better than evil, but sinful or evil from the earliest of age, have you noticed that one of the earliest sort of words that children use when you ask them to do something is no. Rarely it's yes. Yes, mummy, yes, daddy, I would love to do that. Now, eventually, as we raise them as good children, they eventually do that, and they do it with joy, don't they? Um, But we see right from the earliest of ages there is that tendency towards a sinful heart. But in spite of this, in spite of God declaring that man is is sinful from his youth, in spite of that, God makes a, a covenant, a promise that we read in verse 22. Let's read it again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Some of you may ask, what's a covenant? What does covenant mean? Well, somebody once said about God's covenant that it's a promise grounded in committed, faithful love. God here promises after the flood to preserve and to provide for mankind through seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And I want us to look this morning at three things about harvest. And the first thing is harvest confirms God's promise to provide God blesses us by providing for us. I trust that everybody this morning had some food to eat. And you certainly have eaten food over the past week because it would be noticeable if you hadn't. We have food to eat. God has provided food for us. You know, without seed time and harvest, civilization will be wiped out. No longer be here. In God's promise of preservation, not to destroy the earth, he says that the time of harvest would never cease. Part of his promise is that harvest would never cease. You see, if God was to cease to provide the harvest, life on earth would cease to exist. It would come to an end. Without God's provision, it would be impossible to raise a crop that could be harvested. And when God made this promise to give He gave Noah, sorry, when God made this promise, he gave Noah a sign of this promise with a rainbow. In chapter 9, verse 16, God says that when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the covenant. And you know, I was thinking about the rainbow and I was thinking about this covenant. And I started to see the link between the rainbow and harvest. You know, you can't have a rainbow unless you have sun and rain. And you can't have harvest unless you have sun and rain. They're connected. Rain and sun are needed need for for seed to grow and produce a harvest. And every time we see a rainbow, it encourages us to remind ourselves of God's promise to preserve and provide a harvest. And don't just admire the colours. It's beautiful, isn't it, when you see a rainbow? You see when you really get a super one and the, and the colours are so beautiful. But don't just admire the colours. But also let's be astonished and marvel and reminded of God's love towards his creation. The second thing about harvest is that harvest produces thanksgiving. The harvest festival stands in a long tradition for God's people. It goes back a good Four thousand years. If you'd like to turn to Exodus twenty-three, Exodus twenty-three and verse fourteen. Exodus twenty-three, fourteen. This was a command that was given um, by God to the Jewish people. Laws about the Sabbath and about festivals. The word says here, three times in the year, this is God speaking to the people of God, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, or of the first fruits of your labour. Of what you sow in the field. You should keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruits of your labor. Three harvests, three festivals that were mentioned here, and it's all in connection with harvest. And it was like a three line whip for every Jew. Every Jew had to attend these three festivals. The first festival was the feast of the Passover. It was usually held in April at the beginning of harvest and it was to remind them of God's provision in bringing them out of Egypt under Moses. The second festival was the Feast of Weeks or Harvest where the Jews gave thanks to God for their crop. This festival occurred at the end of the barley harvest. And the third festival, the Festival of Booths or more commonly known as the Feast of Tabernacles, occurred after the grape harvest was over. All these three festivals of thanksgiving to God for God's provision, for God fulfilling his covenant of preservation. All three of these festivals reminded them of God's provision and God's blessing. And they were joyful festivals. They were joyful festivals. And gratitude and thanksgiving would be very much in the hearts of the people of God at these festivals. They recognized that although they had seeded the land, they had sown into the land, they had sown the seed into the land, the harvest they reaped was a provision and blessing of God. And in that awareness, it generated within them thanksgiving. You know, in the USA, um, they still celebrate... Looking for Kate. Where's Kate here? I can't see Kate. See how we have Americans amongst us who... They celebrate... Uh, in November they celebrate Thanksgiving Day and this was a festival that came about as a result of the first pilgrims in in the New World in October 1621 90 Native Americans and 53 pilgrims celebrated (laughs) with a feast then that lasted three days it doesn't last three days now it's just one day but celebrating their first harvest and still to this day they still celebrate Thanksgiving. And it's interesting, that, that, that celebration is not a celebration where, like at Christmas or birthdays, we exchange presents. They just come together and thank God. Those who are Christians particularly thank God for his provision at that time of the year. <clears throat> it's a celebration where, as the name suggests, it's not about presents but about giving thanks. And in Thanksgiving... In thanksgiving, we bless God. Psalm 103, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So as we give thanks to God, we bless him. When we eat, we have the opportunity to give thanks. When we see the sun, we have the opportunity to give thanks. When we feel the rain, we have opportunity to give thanks and not complain that it's raining to give thanks for the sun and the rain which brings about his provision of food for us and his blessings upon us. When we see the rainbow, it's an opportunity to reflect and give thanks for God's promise not to destroy the land, but through seed time and harvest, sun and rain, that he will provide for us. And the third thing I want to say about harvest is, is that harvest points to a future spiritual reality. If you turn to John 4, if you turn to John 4, we look from 34 to 36. In John 4, Jesus speaks to his disciples about another harvest. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his will. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. There's so much we could say about this, but we don't have time this morning. But the background to this statement that Jesus has made is that he'd come to a village, he'd been travelling around with his disciples, he came to a village in Samaria called Sychar, And he was tired. And he sat by a well. And the disciples went off into the village to get some food. So he was sitting alone by the well, Thirsty. But he had no means to be able to draw water from the well. And there's this woman from the village comes along and she came to fill her pot of water. And Jesus asked the woman to give him a drink as he had nothing to draw water from the well with. Now, we might think that's quite normal. But that was a real shock to this woman. That was a shock. Because she asked Jesus, why would a Jew... Ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. As Jews and Samaritans were not actually very friendly towards each other. In fact, they were enemies of each other. They wouldn't associate with them. So for a Jewish man to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink was quite amazing and quite shocking to this woman. And Jesus and, and the Samaritan woman then had, a, had, a, had a, quite a conversation, had a discussion about various things. And then Jesus then proceeded to tell the woman her life story, even though they had never met before. And she was so amazed. She was so amazed. She just left her jar, left her jar by, by Jesus, and, and ran back to the village to tell the other villages that she believed in what she'd heard from Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, that she'd found the Messiah. The Messiah, again, some of you may wonder, what, who, who's the Messiah? Well, that was someone who had been prophesied down through the centuries as someone who would come and liberate the people of God, the Jews, and save them. And they didn't fully understand all that that entailed, but they understood that. So as she ran off to, town, off to the town, the disciples returned with food and urged Jesus to eat. But Jesus' attention was drawn elsewhere. He used this opportunity to encourage the disciples to look, to see beyond the here and now, to see beyond just this, what currently is the need of, of, of some food to eat and something to drink, and to look for something on a higher plane. He wanted to take their eyes off of the here and now. And he ignored the food that they had brought back and explained to them that for him, the the very bread and butter of his existence was to do the Father's will. They were thinking about their stomachs. They were thinking of how tired they were. They were thinking they needed this. But Jesus wanted to direct their attention onto a higher plane. Jesus said, doesn't he... um, uh, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then, and then with a mild rebuke, he says, look, see that the fields are white for harvest. When they looked across the fields, they would not have seen any crops. There would have been nothing in those fields that had been white. There were crops. There are no crops that when they come to to ready for harvesting in the Middle East that would be white. So what was Jesus saying? Look, see that the fields are white for harvest. But as the disciples looked across the field, John tells us that the people from the town were coming towards them. The whole village now had heard from this woman this woman had told them that she believed that she'd found the Messiah. And so they were coming across the fields. It must have been an incredible sight, seeing all these people coming across the fields. And what would they be dressed in? White robes. Jesus would, was, was, was pointing them not to harvesting in the fields as such, and the crops. He was referring to a human harvest verse 36, Jesus was saying he was gathering fruit for eternal life. And it was because of the widow's testimony that they came to see Jesus. But we read in verse 42, They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. They heard for themselves. They came because somebody told them, And that's our responsibility as as believers and as Christians to to tell people about Jesus. But we can't save them. It's only when they came and they heard for Jesus. Now, we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. Jesus Christ, the son of God, God in human flesh, his very purpose in coming to planet Earth was to reap harvest of souls for eternal life. And these Samaritans realised and believed that this man sitting by the world is the saviour of the world. We saw earlier in in our first uh, looking at Noah, we saw earlier that although God promised after the flood to preserve the land, the problem of sin was not resolved. And even though God promised seed time and harvest and to provide food for our bodies, there was still an issue of man's sin towards a holy God. And these Samaritans, the Jews, realised this because they recognised the need of a saviour. The prophets had prophesied down through the ages a Messiah that was to come, a saviour. You might ask this morning, why is it necessary for Jesus to be the Savior of the world. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that the penalty for sin is death and that sin would separate us from God. And if we are to receive eternal life, that Jesus has come, for that Jesus talks about here, we need saving from our separation from God. And that separation from God, we cannot resolve that ourselves. We can't ourselves reconcile ourselves to God. Not even by good works. No matter how many good works. Not even by doing food bank stuff or, or, or the, the, the Wild Goose Cafe or whatever works we do. We cannot save ourselves by ourselves. Not even by our good works. Mankind, we, therefore, need someone to put that relationship right. We need someone who could take the penalty for our sins and reconcile us back to God, to restore a relationship with God. You see, to be a Christian is not fundamentally about how we behave, but what we believe. Now, if we believe, it will affect our behaviour. But so often we see in the world, don't we, that the thinking is all about behaviour. I wonder how many, I've probably said this before, how many of you in your places of work or school have done something and you had somebody turn around to you and say, I thought you were a Christian. What does that mean? What does that tell us? It tells us that the world thinks Christianity fundamentally is about behaviour and it's not. It's about believing. Now that affects behaviour. But we're sinners saved by grace. So what is it that we need to believe? If we say it's about what we believe and not what we behave, well, first of all, it's to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he is God incarnate, God in the flesh. He was coming to earth in human form, and that when he died upon the cross, he took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. And he paid the price for our sin. That's his very purpose in coming. That's what we need to believe. And we more than believe it, we need to trust in it. You know, there are people who say, well, I believe, I believe that uh, Jesus uh, came to planet Earth. I believe he perhaps died on a cross. But to believe the Bible talks about is a belief that trusts in it. You know, when we get to heaven, or when we get to the doors of heaven, if is standing there, if, and he says, well, what basis do I let you into heaven? We start saying, well, I did this, I went to church, and I prayed, and I did da 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 It's an exam you never want to fail. I mean, that's the one exam you don't want to fail. It's because I'm trusting in the person and the work of Jesus. Now you might say it in different ways but that is the essence of what will allow you into heaven. Our good works. The very reason God sent his son to planet earth to live 33 years of sinless living and then to die on a cruel cross to receive the judgment of God in our place that was the very purpose of him coming. And we know John 3.16 that whoever believes in Jesus, will receive eternal life. You know, we will soon celebrate Christmas, a time particularly where we remember God coming to earth in human form. How did the, how did the angels, Luke two, how did the angels announce Jesus? For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a king. A prince, Uh, somebody who has incredible powers. No, a saviour, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to harvest souls. He came for people, people for eternity, the title this morning is The Blessings of Harvest. We are blessed by God's provision of the, for the needs of the body. And we're blessed when we recognise and accept Jesus as Saviour. Our greatest, greatest need is the need of a Saviour and the need to trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ. just want to conclude from the words of David in Psalm 32. Blessed, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Isn't it wonderful to know that all of our sins, all of our transgressions, have been forgiven? Isn't it wonderful to know that God will not count our iniquities and hold them against us. The greatest blessing that we can receive is to know that our sins are forgiven, our relationship with God is restored, and to receive eternal life. Let's pray.